things to you be the glory. So we resonate with our voices that same truth that we say that you be adored and magnified through all of eternity. And we want to do that. We long to do that. Lord, our hearts want to do that now and we do it so poorly we feel within ourselves. We cry out, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And we delight that we have been spared, we have been saved in Christ Jesus. We have no condemnation. We have in the deepest part of our being, we who know you, the desire to honor you and to live for you, though we stumble badly. And the glory is not only that we will see your glory, but that we will respond to that glory with perfectly pure hearts and the fullness of our being made fully alive in every way, unencumbered by sin, to offer you the praise that is due your name. Lord, that is true. It's reality. Holy Spirit, enlighten our eyes that we may behold the glory of those things for which we have been laid hold of. And use your word as in our time together, and particularly in the supper, to move our hearts and our affections and our minds in that direction. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you will, of course, to the book of Revelation. We're back again with the church at Thyatira this morning. This is the third message, and we're going to extend a little bit beyond uh, that as well. At least one more week. There is so much here to uh, take notice of and to observe and to consider as we walk through the Lord's message to the churches. Uh, in one sense, in all of the churches, or at least in five out of the seven, there is an emphasis on Christ's desire for the holiness of the church. As you know, the pattern that we've seen and observed already, that there is a message of commendation followed by a message of rebuke, a message of condemnation, showing that though the Lord recognizes the good that His people do, He will not ignore sin, He will not overlook sin, He will not excuse sin, and He calls His people to holiness. God has always been concerned about the holiness of His people, about the purity of His people. We see it throughout the entirety of Scripture. We see it dramatically in the life of Christ Himself. If you'll remember in Matthew chapter 21, when He entered into the temple amid the praises of many of the crowds, throwing palm branches on the ground, Jesus Himself riding on a donkey that, on which garments had been laid, others laying garments in the, his path into Jerusalem. And he goes into Jerusalem amid these praises and the expectations of many in the crowds that he would be a conqueror, he would be the Messiah they awaited for, that he would bring the glory of Jerusalem to its culmination, that he would bring the power of Rome to its knees, and he would exalt the nation of Israel. And instead, what did he do? You remember, he went and he cleared out the temple. He made cords. Likely this was the second time in his ministry that he did that. That's debatable, but I would take it as the second time that he did that in his ministry. That he went into the temple and he cleared it out and he said, What are you doing? This is to be a house of prayer and a place of worship of God. And he cleared it out. And he said, You're defaming the name of God among the nations. He was zealously concerned for the holiness of the worship of his people. And yet in the midst of that zeal, one thing, characteristic throughout God, throughout the entirety of Scripture and in the, the ministry of Christ, is that He is patient with His people. Yes, He cleared out the temple in zealous, being zealous for holiness, but that was after many years of ministry. That was after teaching and healing and living among them. 
And he cleared the temple and he confronted the hypocrisy of the leadership, but he also submitted himself to the will of the Father and died on the cross. He gave his life as a ransom for sin, even for those who would believe in him, even among those who abused him and for those who hated him. And then again, after such an act of grace as he had promised to them, he destroyed the temple in 70 AD because of their rebellion and because of their refusal to accept their Messiah. And so as we read in Romans 11 this morning, behold, the kindness and the severity of God. He is full of kindness, but it is a holy kindness. He has infinite love, but it is a holy love. He has mercy, but it is a holy mercy. It is not a mercy, a grace, a love, and a kindness that he will let be corrupted by sin. And that really is the heart of Christ, the risen Christ that we see as he speaks to these churches. There is a kindness, there is a patience, but there is a severity. There is the promise of forgiveness with repentance, and yet there is the very real warning of judgment with unbelief and hardness of heart. And so with that as an introduction, let's read his message to the church of Thyatira, and then look at his call to repentance this morning. Read with me beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give each one of you according to your deeds." But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of potter are broken to pieces, as I also received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We've noticed, of course, the context of Thyatira. It was a growing city in affluence and prosperity. It was a city that was rife, as with any pagan city of that time, with idols, and it was associated to the economic prosperity trade guilds. We've mentioned that. It is there that the church finds itself tempted to compromise because of social reasons and economic reasons with the culture around him. And he gives a message, Christ does, speaking to this church, reminding them of his divine nature, of his eyes like a flame of fire that he sees and knows, that his feet are like furnished bronze, that he is a king, that he is one who will rule and judge in power and authority. He speaks as the Messiah in verse 19, commending them as we noted for their deeds, for their love, faith, and service. And there's a direct contrast, as we said, with the church at Ephesus, whereas Ephesus started in love and had 
diminished and been degraded spiritually to really a sense of legalism, a sort of doctrine without doxology of the heart. But he says that's not how it was with Thyatira. In fact, they were increasing in all of these fruits of salvation and glorifying God in them. And yet, they were also tolerating the woman Jezebel. And that's what we looked at last week in his condemnation of them. Jezebel was a woman who claimed for herself to be a prophetess and to be a teacher of God, and yet she was not a true prophetess, and yet she was not a true teacher of God. In fact, she was usurping a, a place of authority that was meant for men in the church. Her influence was not leading to godliness, but it was leading to sin, and many were buying on to her teaching and being led astray. They were buying on to her allowance for compromise with the culture around them, and particularly the idolatrous practices associated again with the guilds. And she was leading them into sin. And so Christ calls her out and he calls out those who were participating in this immorality and this unfaithfulness to Christ. And while he is going to directly address those who were following her teaching and what we'll look at this morning, he's also addressing the church. And remember, the church as a whole was condemned for this, for tolerating it, for tolerating it. For allowing this to happen, to go on under their noses and in their midst. They were not calling her out as they ought to have been doing. But Christ will, as he calls the church and those who were following her teaching to repentance. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. The call to repentance in verses 21 through 23. Now one of the first things that we notice at the very beginning of this call... And it's unique to Thyatira, at least in this way. The idea is really present because all of the churches, he's giving them time to repent. But he notes specifically that a time has already come in which he has issued a call to Thyatira. And in verse 21, he says, I gave her time to repent. And this is unique in comparison with the other messages to the other churches. It's the only place that he mentions that specifically here. And so I want us to observe first in verse 21, the patience of Christ. The patience of Christ. He says, I gave her time in order that she should repent. I gave her time in order that she should repent for the purpose of her repentance, to give her time for repentance. The implication is that Christ sent some warning to this false teacher and those who were among them, this sect within the church, to turn away from error and to turn back to the truth, to turn back to faithfulness, to turn back to Christ. He had, he had sent a message. It's not specifically mentioned how he sent the message. It may have come through John. It may have been through those who had the true prophetic gift who were confronting her in the assembly. It may have been through other messengers that came, Christians from other places. He doesn't say, and it doesn't really matter, because what is clear is this, that Christ got the message to the false teacher and those following her somehow that they should repent that they should turn from what they were doing, that they should turn from the sin that they were engaging in. And that is the patience of Christ. And notice her response. And she does not want to repent. Literally, it could be she's not willing to repent. She does not want to repent. She will not repent. So having heard the message from the risen Christ, she made the moral, spiritual choice not to heed the warning. She heard the message, she understood the message, she had no interest in the message, and therefore she continued in her ways. And he gave her time. He was patient, and she would not listen. 
And this is instructive to us. It shows the patience and the mercy of God to the rebellious and to the unbelieving. It shows the patience of Christ towards sinners and God through Christ to sinners. It shows really His heart to forgive, that, that He desires mercy rather than judgment. That He would rather her repent than bring to her the punishments that he's going to warn of later, that he would rather bless this church and even bless this false teacher if there were repentance than bring judgment. It shows that he has infinite resources of grace and desire to restore. But as we said, it is a holy patience. It is a patience, it is, reveals his heart, but it is a patience that will not last forever. He will deal, deal with sin. And we see here in the message of Christ to the church, the, the heart of God that has been demonstrated really from the garden and the fall of man all the way through the end of time into the very coming of Christ in power and glory with all the holy angels in Revelation 19 when he executes justice and judgment on the world and all of the rebellious. This has always been the heart of God. This has always been the heart of God. Let me just demonstrate that to you a bit showing the consistency of Christ with God's revelation of himself throughout all of Scripture. Let me give you some examples of this. In 2 Chronicles 36, God says this in 2 Chronicles, and he's talking here about God's attitude towards his people, God's attitudes towards his people whom he was going to send into exile. He was going to destroy the temple of Jerusalem, speaking to the southern tribe of Judah, having already taken away the northern tribes by Assyria into captivity over a century earlier. He's saying that the judgment's coming, but the judgment's coming after a long time of him suffering with his people in the most grotesque kinds of rebellion, the most grotesque kinds of idolatry and unfaithfulness and blasphemy and rejection of their covenant God. And yet he says this in verse 15, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers. Because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his word, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against the people, until there was no remedy. He said something similar in Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah 25, verse 4 speaking again of the judgment that's going to come to them in the exile. He says to Jeremiah, And the Lord sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again. But you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever. And do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. And I will do you no harm. Yet... You have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands and to your own harm. Quoting from Isaiah, we read it in our read through, I, through Romans in chapter 10. He says, all day long I've stretched my hands out to a disobedient people. I've beckoned, I've called, I've called you to repentance, I've reminded you of my promises, and you have not listened. 
So when judgment comes, understand that it comes by your own hand. It comes by your own choice. It comes because you chose not to walk in the good way, the ancient paths, but you chose to go your own way and you will eat the fruit of it. And this is God's message to the world. This is the message of God and of Christ to sinners, that He's patient. Let me remind you of one other passage. In Christ's ministry to the nation of Israel in Luke chapter 13, He gives this example. They come to Him and they say that some people died because the Tower of Siloam fell on them. And He says, be careful. Do you think that they were worse sinners? No, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And they say, well, what about those who were worshiping at the altar and Herod came with a sword and he, and he put them to death? Christ says, do you think they're worse sinners? Unless you repent, you likewise will perish. And then he gives this wonderful parable. And it says, a blind man, or a man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard, vineyard keeper, behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and he said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too until I dig around it and, and I put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. And there he's speaking of the infinite patience of God. Particularly there, even through the ministry of the Messiah during his three years of public ministry. That he called them to repentance. That he called them to faith. That he revealed himself as the Messiah. And the parable says that, oh, Israel was refusing it again and again, and yet the patience of God is saying, give them more time, give them more time, but if they do not repent, cut it down. And of course, that's what he did. What about even at the beginning of the account of the history of the world in Genesis, when God patiently warned before the flood, in 1 Peter 3.20 he says this, speaking of those who were disobedient in that time, who were now kept for judgment. He says, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. For 120 years, according to Genesis 6.3, Noah who was called a preacher of righteousness by Peter in his epistle as well, built an ark, anticipated the judgment of God. For 120 years, though the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and of all the people, the image bearers of God on the earth at that time, he found one man, Noah, to be blameless and upright in his ways following the Lord in that generation. One man whom he would spare along with his wife and his children and their spouses from the judgment that was to come. For 120 years he waited. God's patient now before the judgment that is to come. Listen to Peter again. Know this first of all, that in the days, last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. And by his word at the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord... One day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. And the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But when the time for perishing comes, it will come like a thief in the night. God is patient. God is patient. He warns of judgment. He gives time for repentance. That is the heart of God. He suffers long with sinners. He calls them to receive His salvation. And understand that God is warning sinners when He calls to repentance from Himself. To be saved from Himself. His own wrath. His own judgment. God warns and is patient with sinners, holding up before them His own mercy and grace by bearing their punishment himself in the cross. And yet, men refuse and his patience will come to an end. He's given the example of the flood, his many judgments after the flood, the coming of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the heralding of the gospel through his church. God is patient with sinners. God is patient and gives time to repent. And yet, we also need to add this, that the patience of God and the patience of Christ is a two-edged sword towards the unrepentant. It's a two-edged sword. He gives time for repentance if his warnings are heeded, but at the same time, when his warnings are not heeded, it increases wrath. It increases judgment. Listen to this in Romans 2.4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. Do not count the patience of God, he says, as slowness. Jezebel may have heard the warnings and thought she could disregard them without harm to herself because the punishment was not immediately executed. We've read that before when we went through Ecclesiastes. That unbelievers, if there is not an immediate execution of God's judgment on their wicked ways, feel safe to sin, feel safe to disregard the warnings, and safe to not listen to the judgment of God. Ecclesiastes 8.11 Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. It is in fact the patience of God. It is the patience of God and the patience of Christ that calls sinners to repentance. It is that patience that is being executed here towards Jezebel and her wicked ways. She is leading the people of God astray. She's actually leading them into sin. She's actually confusing the gospel. And Christ would be in every 
a right as the divine judge to execute that judgment quickly, but instead to this disobedient, wicked, false teacher and those who are following her, he sends warnings. He sends the message to repent. That is the kindness of God. And yet it is a kindness with severity. If it's not heeded. And so we must be aware of the patience of God. The patience of God that calls us to repentance. And so what does she do with this patient Christ? Well, I gave her time to repent. I sent her messengers. I sent her warnings. I gave her my word. I gave her time, and she does not want to repent. She is not willing to repent of her immorality. It was a refusal of unbelief, and that's what unbelief is. God has furnished proof to all men by raising Christ from the dead that judgment is coming, that salvation was accepted, his sacrifice, whom he was publicly held up for all to see. It was not done in a corner. And so he's patient, but man is unwilling. Jezebel is unwilling. When faced with the command to repent, she simply did not want to. She ignored the call and she chose her own way. She would not repent of her immorality. Porneos. In this use, it emphasizes most likely her spiritual unfaithfulness. It, yes, included sexual immorality in terms of the pagan worship and what she was leading them into, but the emphasis here in the use of the term seems to be on her spiritual unfaithfulness. And she represents, in that sense, all unregenerate and unbelieving persons because she had no real love for Christ, though she claimed to speak in his name. She was saying, I'm a teacher of God. I'm a teacher of Christ. I'm a teacher to the people of God. I'm a prophetess. I'm bringing them the word of God. I'm instructing them in the way that is right. But in fact, she had no love for Christ, no fear of God, no desire or sensitivity for his glory, for his will, or for his word. She was completely self-interested, self-led, self-ruled, and self-absorbed. Rather than a sensitivity to the truth, she displayed a hardness of heart. And she then, in that sense, represents the kingdom of the Antichrist. That's what Satan's dominion over his citizens looks like. Hardness of heart. That, by the way, is what God's judgment looks like. You remember three times in Romans 1, verse 24, verse 26, verse 28, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over because they would not listen. It is the kind of hardness of heart that develops in those who refuse the patience of God, who abuse the patience of God. A hardness that's really hard for us to fathom. Listen to some of the ways it finds its ultimate expression in the book of Revelation itself. Looking at the future time when the judgments of God are going to come with such force and with such power, such universal destruction. And yet, most will not repent. Verse 20 of Revelation 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither, neither see nor hear nor walk and they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their immorality nor of their thefts. The back of a fool was made for a rod well, the rod was made for the back of a fool. The one who does not fear God. 
And so no matter these judgments that were coming, clearly coming by the hand of God, clearly coming by the hand of God for their sin and their rebellion, and yet rather than repentance, they refused to repent. Revelation 16, verse 9 and 11. Men were scorched with fierce heat. And they were humbled and they turned to the Lord. No, listen to what he says. And they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Verse 11, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. As a matter of fact, as the judgments were both a judgment of God to execute his justice, they were also a summons of God to repent. Many are saved out of the tribulation. And yet, the heart of man that hardens itself against the patience of God becomes only more angry at God when the consequences for their sin increase. In fact, what's demonstrated there is the same kind of hostility that fuels the anger against God of those who are in hell, who are described as weeping and gnashing his teeth, gritting their teeth against God in anger and revulsion at who he is and what he's done to them, a hatred of him. And so it is with this false teacher and with others God's patience warned her, but she was not willing to repent. She was of the kingdom of the Antichrist. And again, this shows the hardening effects of sin. The hardening effects of sin. When there's no seeking for repentance, it makes the heart callous to the convictions of conscience. Some false teachers in 1 Timothy 4 are seared in their conscience. They are callous in their conscience. And so the calls to repentance become more and more faint until they're totally silent to the conscience. And listen to how he describes that in Ephesians 4. Being darkened in their understanding, speaking of those outside of Christ, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. A heart that cannot be satisfied with enough sin and needs more and more and more. And the essence of the doctrine of sin is in this statement, that she was unwilling. That's the doctrine of sin. Unwilling to go the way of God and pursuing your own way. And so she was. And so that's the ultimate warning. The soul bound by sin is not forced to sin. It is enslaved to its lust. And so it will only ever choose sin and is unwilling to come to Christ. That means the mind, the affections, and the will of the unregenerate heart are so captured by inward lust that it effectually makes righteousness impossible, even the desire to de the ability to desire God impossible so that it can only be described as spiritual death and spiritual slavery and inability. But it is an inability because of the dominating influence and power of lust within the heart that makes the heart unwilling to come to Christ. And it is the condition and the response, not merely of Jezebel, not merely of her followers, but ultimately of all unbelievers. She was not willing. And from God's perspective, this is hostility. 
The mind of the set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. And that's important to understand. It is the unwillingness of the sinner to heed the warnings of Christ and the calls of Christ. And Christ demonstrates this not only in his heavenly ministry at the right hand of the Father, but he demonstrated this same kind of patience throughout his ministry, as we already noted in Luke 13 in the parable. But listen to it even more specifically. When Jesus, after excoriating the hypocritical leaders of the nation of Israel, who were leading people going out to all parts of the earth to make them twice as much as sons of hell as themselves, he says this to them. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, are in their hearing. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what Paul was in part referring to in Romans 11. In other words, Christ was patient with them. He suffered long with them. He warned them. Even when he was confronting their sin, even when he was doing that with the nation of Jerusalem, it was not just so he could leave them there. It was so that they would turn to him as Messiah and realize there is grace, there is forgiveness, there is hope, there is restoration. You can know the forgiveness of God like the adulterous woman who wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and loved him much because she had been forgiven much and so there is even in her the example that none is beyond the grace of God none who turns to Christ will be refused forgiveness none who are under the conviction of sin who want to be restored and reconciled to God will be turned away all will be received all will be accepted all will know the grace of God God will take even the sins of Jezebel if she would have turned even the sins of Judas if he would have turned and he would have wiped them away he would have made them as far as the east is from the west he would have called them a son and a daughter if they would have repented but they were unwilling to repent and that is the issue that's why we need regeneration and the work of the spirit because that's every sinner unwilling to repent until God sovereignly monergistically by his own will and purpose makes the sinner willing but none can look to him and say it's, it's your fault. It's your fault. In fact, let's just consider this even a little bit deeper. Christ noted to the leaders in John chapter 8, you'll remember, that you want to do the will of your father, the devil. You want to do the will of your father. If you were to peel back and to look at the layers and say, what is the deepest want of your heart? What is the desire of your heart? It is ultimately, though they would have said it was, to do the will of God? He says, no, it's not. It's to do the will of your father, the devil. He is the one who is influencing you. As Paul put it more generally in Ephesians 2, speaking of the Gentiles as well, you want to do the will of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, why then does there cause such conflict? Why is there such conflict? Well, think of it this way. If you want to do the will of the God of this world, then the will of Christ, the will of God, is unpleasant. It's insufferable. It's offensive and even hateful to your soul. 
When God says what is right and what is good and what is beautiful and what is praiseworthy, the unregenerate soul recoils because of all of these things are bound to his glory in Christ and they refuse Christ. They find their greatest expression and fulfillment in Christ and there is no love for Christ in the unregenerate heart. And so when God says what is right and what is good, the unregenerate heart recoils and says no, no. Now notice here then, this is the opposite of a true believer, of a regenerate person, of one who has experienced the grace of God, who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who is truly a member of the new covenant that we'll celebrate this morning. It's the opposite of a spiritually alive and a healthy church. The sincerity of faith and the possession of the life of the Spirit, let me just note, is marked by at least three fundamental things connected here to his message. It is a heart that inwardly resonates and affirms the truth about Christ as revealed in Scripture. The regenerate heart hears the truth of God and hears in it the voice of the risen Christ and it resonates within their heart as true and right and good and it affects their soul in a way that it elicits out of them desire and response to know God and to listen to Him and to follow Him. Referring to the speakers of Antichrist and the true believers of God, he says this in 1 John 4, they are from the world, therefore the world, they, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. Because if the heart is unregenerate, then they go to Jezebel, and they go, what Jezebel says makes sense. What the false teacher says makes sense. It resonates within my soul as true and good and right and fitting my desires. It's like gathering teachers that will tickle the ears. And so to an unregenerate heart, false teaching, they say yes. But to an unbeliever says, no, that is another voice and we will not follow another voice. Something about that doesn't sit right. It's not true. And so he says in verse 6, we are from God and he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So those who were listening to Jezebel and embracing her ways were showing themselves to be not of God. And she herself was showing herself this. Secondly, a fundamental fruit of regeneration is the heart whose deepest and truest desire then is to obey Christ and to delight in and to yield to His commandments. First John 2, throughout First John, the one who says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. Go up to verse 5, or 3, 4. The one who does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But the one who keeps his word in him, the love of God, has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Thirdly then, and this is what she is demonstrating, Jezebel, that the heart that knows God, that knows Christ in truth, has an inner sensitivity to sin. And when there's a lack of conformity to his word, when we recognize any remaining rebellion and unbelief in our hearts, it causes discomfort, misery, agitation. The conscience is bothered. It wants relief. It leads to confession, to a longing for cleansing and for repentance and for obedience. And so it says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you're a believer, is that not what you want? When you sin, you want to be cleansed. You say with David, cleanse me, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. 
Cleanse me from the corruption of the sin. Not merely from the guilt of it. Not merely from the punishment of it. Not merely from the consequence of it. Those I accept whatever you bring my way. But I want to be cleansed from its inward corruption. From its pollution of all that is good and holy. And so we cry with David. It says, in my mind, I long and I exult in the word of God, in the law of God, in my inner man. I resonate as with the word of God. It's true, and I see that I don't always do it, and so there's a conflict that leads me always back to the grace of God in Christ at the cross. So true to teaching and true receiving of Scripture produces this kind of heart, this kind of demeanor, this kind of disposition toward Christ, toward holiness, and toward others. This is the exact opposite of Jezebel and of all false teachers. I don't know why, but for some reason, something sparked that in my mind. I've been looking at these Word of Faith preachers. Robert Tilton last night, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, and so on. It's hard to watch them, of course. But I think thinking of these things made me think of them and what, what wickedness is on display. And so it is here. The exact opposite of what this false prophetess Jezebel was demonstrating and the kind of fruit that was being produced by her ministry. The fruit of her teaching, the fruit as we've noted before, as you already know, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. When it is the fruit of a ministry that is committed in truth to the glory of God, that is committed in truth to gazing on the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, when it is a ministry that is committed to following the Savior who has redeemed, then it produces a certain fruit. Faithfulness, humility, love, joy, patience, all of those things. But if it is a false teaching, it doesn't produce that. It's unfaithfulness, compromise, and sin with sin, not holiness. That's what her ministry was producing. That's what every false ministry produces. Not righteousness. That's one way to evaluate it. And so he warns of judgment. So he was patient with sinners, patient with her. He gave her time to repent. She refused. She didn't want it. It didn't in any way resonate in her heart with what is right and beautiful and true. And so it is with all who reject Christ. Everything that is dark and unlovely attracts the heart of the unbeliever. Everything that is beautiful in Christ and holy attracts the heart of a believer. It's that simple. By this, you know those who are of the world and of the devil, 1 John 3. And so he says, but if that's what continues to be displayed, know that there is a consequence and note the warning of judgment. And so he says, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her immorality. So behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give each one to each one of you according to your deeds. So if you continue, know that the patience will end and you will go from the kindness of God and the patience of God to the severity of God and Christ himself, he says, will cast you on a bed of sickness. He will cause suffering. Now the term here, translated bed of sickness, actually it's just the term for bed, cot, stretcher. It could be anything that somebody lays on or reclines on. And there's been various ideas of what he's referring to here. The precise nature is not clear. Some, instead of a bed of sickness, 
casting her onto the bed, say that refers to eternal judgment in hell or the tribulation, the eschatological judgment that is to come or of sickness or of death. The translation here, bed of sickness, is probably the best, referring to physical sickness from her sin. Or if taken in parallel with verse 23, with pestilence, it could refer to sickness that, we go, that will end in death. But in either case, the point is this, that judgment will come and the judgment will be severe. And it will be on those he identifies as having committed adultery with her. Now he's not referring to all of those who had sexual immorality who practiced that with her. He's saying those who have followed in the unfaithfulness of Jezebel, the adultery here has its primary meaning and sense in the spiritual unfaithfulness who have followed her and her false teaching. Yes, that led to all manner of sin, including sexual immorality. But here is that you are unfaithful to the gospel that you proclaimed. Remember, he's talking to the church and those who claim the name of Christ. And so the core issue here is spiritual unfaithfulness and covenant treachery that led to all the other manifestations. So you're going to suffer. I'm going to throw her on a bed of sickness. Those who commit adultery with her, he says, into great tribulation. What is it referring to here? And some take this to refer to the, the tribulation, the great tribulation spoken of in chapter 7, verse 14 of Revelation. That's possible. I don't think that that's what he means here for some grammatical issues and contextual issues. One, in 7.14, it has a definite article. It's actually the great, or the affliction, the great, referring to something specific. Some say that's because it's the second mention of the term, but it seems to be there to be referring to a specific time in, in contrast to what he's saying here. Plus, the affliction here is promised to a specific group who will be observed by churches of the error. In either case, that doesn't matter so much because ultimately everyone who follows in false teaching is going to be a part of the judgment to come. Everyone is going to experience eternal death who remains in that way. And in one sense, the warning is not only to the church here, but to the church throughout the ages, even to us today. But a more important question really is this. Are these true believers being severely disciplined or unbelievers within the church who are being judged? That's the question. Are these true believers or unbelievers? How are we to take this? Well, I'm going to at least mention this point. Well, on one hand, we have to acknowledge this. That believers can sin and even create and bring onto themselves patterns of sin that bring severe discipline of the Lord. Believers sin. Believers sometimes continue in sin. Believers sometimes commit heinous sins. That happens. Scripture recognizes that even within the New Covenant. So 1 Corinthians 3.15 he talks about teachers here particularly within the church who may have external activity around their ministry but their hearts are not right before the Lord. Maybe they're of the ilk of the church at Ephesus who had right doctrine, sound doctrine, taught it but there was no love for Christ. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 3.15, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. That is the work, the fruit of his, his life, of his teaching ministry. He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. In 1 Corinthians 5.5, we've referenced this many times, 
to the man who was immoral, who had his father's wife, most likely his mother-in-law, sexual relationship. The church was simply tolerating it, even as the church at Thyatira was doing with Jezebel. They weren't understanding that a little sin leavens the whole lump, like yeast goes and works its way through the lump. So sin does to the church. So sin does in our own heart. If it is undealt with, it creeps into other areas of life. We cannot isolate sin. Holiness doesn't work like that in word of sanctification. And so they were trying to do that. Paul says, if you're not going to deal with it, I'm going to deal with it. And so he says, I've decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Who's a believer? Committing a heinous sin. 1 Corinthians 11. In the context, as we're familiar with, of the Lord's Supper, he says, many of them are being disobedient, acting selfishly, and so forth. He says, for this reason, many of you are weak and sick, a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, collectively as a body, if we did, and dealt with sin as a body in the church, and it has application to the individual, we would not be judged but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Or 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says this, that keeping faith and a good conscience, he said, some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. That precise phrase, handed over to Satan, is used one other time in the New Testament in what we just read, 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. In 1 Timothy, it actually isn't completely clear whether these leaders are true believers being disciplined or unbelievers. What is clear is this, that the error of their life and doctrine required severe discipline by the apostle acting in the authority of Christ. So it is possible for believers to get true believers to get caught up in error, to get caught up in sin and to need strong rebuke, even severe discipline from the Lord, even physical sickness, even death at times because of the Lord's love for the purity of his church and ultimately even for that person and individual. On the other hand, it is also possible to go too far and by embracing wrong doctrine or continuing in sin in such a way that it shows that one is not converted and one is not saved. And so he says in 2 John, many, verse 7, many deceivers have gone out, out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, they've bought on to false teaching. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Verse 9, if anyone goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. And the one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. You remember Paul's warning to the Galatians. There is another gospel which does not save. There is another gospel that if you believe it, you've been severed from Christ. You've been cut off from grace. So it is possible to go too far. In these cases, the error brings judgment unto eternal death that shows the individual never experienced genuine salvation. They went out from us, he says in 1 John, because they were never of us. So which is he talking about here? Those who are following Jezebel. Well, it likely includes both, both groups. Some are caught up in her teaching. They are of the spirit of Antichrist, and others may temporarily be stumbling. It really depends on one thing. What distinguishes them? 
what distinguishes those in that group, even those who had committed adultery with her, but which he reminds them, unless they still repent, there is still the possibility of repentance. What distinguishes those who are actually unbelievers, unregenerate, who are following after false teaching because it resonates, as opposed to believers who are simply misguided for a period but are wrecked internally? How do we know the difference? It's actually pretty simple. Here's how you know the difference. Repentance. Is there repentance? That's how you know the difference. You say, but the man in 1 Corinthians 5 didn't repent. Well, that's for the Lord to know. He's ultimately the judge. But from our perspective, and from the warnings of Christ, it is repentance. It is repentance. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, we're familiar with this, that test yourself to see whether you be in the faith, unless you discover this, that Christ isn't in you. Just before that, in chapter 12, verse 21, he says, I want to come, and he says, I'm afraid that when I come, God might humble me because some of you have not repented. Before that, in chapter 7, he distinguished that in 2 Corinthians, those who had a sorrow that was according to the world and who had a sorrow according to God. What was the distinguishing mark? Both had sorrow. Peter and Judas both wept. What was the difference? Peter repented. Those that he was addressing, that group in 2 Corinthians, those who had a sorrow according to God, they repented they turned they were convicted they heard the word of the Lord they knew that they were in the wrong their soul was being ravished within them they were like David and they said that my vitality has been drained away with the fever heat of summer I'm wrecked inside I physically feel the pain I know the misery of being separated from the God of God and of the joys and the delights of salvation. And so they hear the call of true believer. They hear the warning passages of God and of Scripture. And they become convicted. They become afraid. They become fearful that it might be them. And they cry out to the Lord for mercy and forgiveness and for restoration. And that He would be merciful to them and change their heart and receive them once again. And those are the ones who display that they were believers all along. But they got tripped up. And the Spirit of God brought them back. But those who go down that road and continue in that road and have no sensitivity to the voice of Christ and to the warnings, they show themselves to be unbelievers and they will be put to death, he says, her and her children. So how do we know if there's repentance? How do we know if we're a believer? At the end of the day, it's our response to sin and to Christ. That's how you know. And I'm a believer, as poorly as we live sometimes, has a desire. And this is what we remember as we come to the table. And we'll have to stop here. When we come to the table, remember that a believer sins. Believers can stray. But believers are wrecked by that disobedience and unfaithfulness to Christ. And they confess their sin. In the silence of their heart, they, they bow before Christ and they ask for forgiveness. And they say, Lord, help me. Help me to walk in the way that is right in the way that is good. Help me to know those joys of the Spirit that I once did. And Christ is merciful to them. And He forgives them. He's patient. He's kind. He's gentle. He's a loving shepherd. He's gentle and humble of heart. But for those who come and it's merely religion or who come and are gladly comfortable with being in church and yet harboring sin in the heart, harboring any hidden lust, any wicked designs that they plan on carrying out. 
then there is the severity of Christ. And yet, even to those, if you find yourself in that place this morning, there is forgiveness available. Do not be unwilling, but willing. And if you find yourself unwilling, ask Christ to make you willing and to forgive you and change your heart. And so we come to rejoice and delight in salvation. We come to rejoice and delight in our Savior who has redeemed us. And these elements are by His design the way that we have symbols to point us back again to our union with Christ, to His death and resurrection on our behalf, and to commit ourselves once again to the Lord to say, Lord, let me show myself to be a true believer, to follow you, to be sensitive to your commands, to confess my sin, to rest completely and solely on your salvation. And, I, and we do that as we come together at the Lord's table. So let me pray and then we'll take these elements. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder. Please teach us. Please call us to greater and greater holiness and faithfulness of life, to not be like Jezebel and those who followed her, but to be those who are faithful, as you'll say next week, those who did not stain their garments, those who did not follow her teaching. Help us to be faithful to you. Thank you for grace and for your mercy. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.